Desert Springs Church, you may be seated. It's a joy to get to be here, to get to preach God's word with you this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff here overseeing our discipleship ministries. I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of Job. This morning, we sang some of my favorite lyrics ever written. They first were penned under the name of Light Shining Out of Darkness, but that's not what we know it by today. These are the lyrics. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. These words were written by William Cooper in 1774. He'd been inspired by Psalm 77, which recounts the life of a saint that's in utter despair. And this saint, in the midst of his cries, questions God, but he also remembers God's promises. He remembers God's character and how he's acted in history, and these truths are a balm to his wound. Cooper likely resonated with this psalm based on what his own life was like. He was born in England in 1731. When he was six years old, his mother passed away during childbirth. And soon after that, he was sent to boarding school by his dad, where he was bullied tremendously by the older kids at the school. He recounts in letters that he doesn't remember their faces, only the buckles on their shoes. At the age of 21, Cooper had his first bout of inexplicable depression. This is what he said. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. Four years after that, Cooper found himself again devastated by a failed romance that had gone on for seven years and ended abruptly. Soon after that came his second severe depression, this time much worse than the first. In the coming months, Cooper would attempt suicide three times, eventually being put in an asylum for his depression. And the remainder of his life was continually marked by these bouts of depression and ongoing attempts at suicide that would occur approximately every 10 years in his life. Even later, as he's nearing death, as he's writing stories to friends, he continues to talk about these moments from years before with the same level of gloom. Throughout his life, we see no reason to think he's moved past the grief. And that continued even when he became a Christian at age 34. The Lord brought him true hope, but hope and despair would be mingled in his life. One would never overpower or overwhelm the other. So this morning, know for certain that despair and hope can coexist. That's true for people with chronic depression. It's true for people that are going through tremendous suffering, like Job. And it can be true for us, too. Last week, we considered Job at his lowest theological moment, questioning God with no hope at all. It was so dark, it would be fitting for us to ask 
Does Job have any hope? And as we consider that question this morning, I want you to ask personally, do you have any hope? Today we'll see that the black clouds of despair can be pushed aside momentarily and rays of hope can burst through. And we'll see that in Job in his speeches. You might remember last week that we talked about how these middle sections of Job can be a little complicated and hard to follow. So it's worth reminding us that we are following these patterns of speeches, right? That Job and his counselors are speaking back and forth to one another. So why are we covering, what would it be, seven chapters this morning? Six chapters? I forget. 15 to 21. Why are we covering so many? Because this would follow along the second cycle of speeches. We're going to have two points this morning. The first will be the friend's diminishing help. The friend's diminishing help. Turn with me to Job chapter 18. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire doesn't shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him, a rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terror frightens him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. We aren't surprised to hear that the friends are becoming more and more of a detriment to Job, that they are less helpful. And that is surprising to us because they weren't helped from the beginning. You might remember when we went through Job chapter 2, Ryan tried to show us that their silence wasn't a good thing. In fact, it showed that they were giving up on Job and waiting for his death. And then last week, after Job laments, these friends just berate him, not with comfort, but with forceful theology. They consistently believed that God ruled the world by these simple principles, like good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So their overarching message, again, is, Job, this is your fault. Their message has been marked by their ignorance. They don't know the whole story of what's going on. It's marked by their arrogance. 
They speak so confidently and assuredly toward Job. Job at one point even says their words are forceful. And their message is also marked by stubbornness. We see no indication at all that they're listening to anything that Job is saying. Let me try and point out three themes that continue to run through the speeches of these friends this morning. The first theme is this. The wicked suffer on account of their wickedness. While the worldview of the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are all the same, the speeches that they say in each cycle often aren't identical. But in this second cycle of speeches, they're remarkably similar. It's as if they've been listening to those that only agree with them. So they're starting to sound like one another. They're in an echo chamber filled with the sounds of fools. If we were to summarize that speech from Bildad that we read in chapter 18, it would be something like this. The wicked are put out, destroyed, and forgotten. We see these words repeated. In verse 5, he says, the light of the wicked is put out. He goes on to describe the wicked being trapped. They're thrown down. They're tricked. They're caught by a net. And then finally, in 17 to 20, he says, there's no one that will remember them when they're gone. And the two other friends, Eliphaz in chapter 15 and Zophar in chapter 20, say almost the exact same thing. Without looking at all of what they say, listen to the words of Eliphaz in chapter 15. He says that the wicked writhe in pain all day long. He has dreadful sounds in his ears. He's tormented. He's hungry. He's in distress. There's anguish. And he has no more wealth to his name. Whereas Bildad emphasizes the putting out, the destruction of the wicked, Eliphaz talks about the ongoing torment. There is no relief in this life for the wicked. In chapter 20, Zophar, the third friend, tells us that the wicked perish forever, like their own dung. Some colorful language from Zophar. The point is all the same. They have one unified message, which is this. The wicked suffer. That's how the world works. The subtext that they're not saying, though, is, hey, Job, who's suffering? What does this say about you, Job? Their point is, Job, you're the wicked man. Don't you see that's why all of this is happening? All that these friends can offer a sufferer is conviction for sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to have more tools in our tool belt than that. Not every sufferer is one size fits all. There are certainly times when someone is suffering and the cause is their own sin. But that's not the only time. We need to be able to sympathize to acknowledge hurt, to comfort, to care, to pray, to know when to speak and when to be silent, to encourage, to know how to remind someone in suffering of the hope of Christ. And brothers and sisters, a healthy church needs more than a couple people that can do that. So, is your only tool the spiritual hammer of repentance? I know it can be for me at times. I wish I was better at this. And I hope you wish that for yourself too. That you would be as useful as you can be to your brothers and sisters. If you feel inadequate in this, I want to encourage you to two things. One, there's a book that Nancy Guthrie wrote. It's called, What Grieving People Wish You Knew. 
I think this is a tremendous resource to help you think about how to care, how to speak, what to say, things maybe to try to avoid, and how to care for people that are grieving. The other thing you can consider doing is talking to Keith Schwalm, our pastor of biblical counseling. He would love to talk to you about how you could be resourced and better trained to do more than just drop the hammer of conviction. Brothers and sisters, we need this. The friends, if anything, show us what not to do. So that's the first theme, that the wicked suffer because of wickedness. But there's a second. The friends suggest that they have true wisdom and that Job is foolish for not listening to them. We won't look at these chapters, but in chapters 12 through 14, in Job's final speech in that first cycle, he defends his wisdom and says, you're not wiser than I am. We both are equally wise. We are learning together. But then Eliphaz says this, are you the first man who was born, Job? Are you, were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in on the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that's not clear to us? You could find that in chapter 15 if you want to see where Eliphaz says that. Doesn't this just drip with irony? Certainly Job wasn't the first man born, but neither was he. Who is he to say that he knows better based on a ground like that? And here's even deeper irony. Did you catch what he said right in the middle? Have you listened in on the counsel of God? Well, neither Job nor his friends have gotten that privilege. But we have. And we know they're both wrong. <laughs> the point is this. Eliphaz is not wise. Yet he thinks that he and his friends are where wisdom can be found. One of the questions of Job is, where is wisdom? It's not in them, and it's not in Job either. And the third theme that we find from the friends is that they get angry and scared that Job is questioning the system. Do you remember the system from last week? The system is that set of beliefs that Job and his friends share, that three-legged stool one of the legs is that God is just. The other leg is that Job's righteous. And the third is that God works in the world with a principle of retribution. If that's new to you, I would encourage you considering listening back to the sermon from last Sunday where we spend much more time talking about this. But both Eliphaz and Bildad get angry and scared because Job is asking big questions about the system. Let me read that what they say about this. In Job 15.4, Eliphaz says, You are doing away with the fear of God in hindering meditation before God. What a stern warning to Job. Bildad said it in 18.4. We read this. You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? To the friends, Job's words are more than simply wrong. They're dangerous and destructive. They fear that Job's words have the potential to destroy religion as they know it and to subvert God's blueprint for creation. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the essence of true piety. And Job, at least in their eyes, 
is forsaking it entirely. But they're wrong. Despite his lamenting, Job is holding fast to God. He is meditating more than they can imagine. And they're worried about this slippery slope of questioning his faith. What the friends are worried about, at least in our words today, would be that Job is deconstructing. This word deconstruction, if it's new to you, has become a trend, it seems. It's this word to describe the process by which someone would question the beliefs that they have held before. And it seems that often, when this process is undergone, people forsake the faith entirely. And so maybe a better word than deconstruction is destruction. Well, Ian Harbour was a man who had deconstructed and then later reconstructed. And he recounted his journey, and he said this, I realized that I didn't have the tools to rebuild. Every belief that he had disassembled, he was not able to put back together. He said, they gave me no guidance for putting it back. And the goal of deconstruction should not be to tear apart. It should be to have greater faithfulness to Jesus. And so Job's certainly questioning the beliefs that he held, but he isn't running from God to find a better answer. Job's not deconstructing. He's reforming. He isn't letting go. He's clinging tighter. And so it's good to question certain aspects of our faith or the faith we grew up in. We shouldn't be surprised that sometimes the traditions we grew up in got things wrong. And we shouldn't be surprised that we maybe misunderstood some things from the beginning and that we need to grow and make some progress. But we don't need to throw out faith altogether. I love the way Gavin Ortland said it. He's a pastor in California. He said, you can deconstruct the eccentricities and dysfunctions of a particular faith without deconstructing the faith itself. And Job's an example of that to us. He's questioning, but he's not running. So we see from chapter 18 and the friends that they keep talking, but their helpfulness is getting less and less and less helpful. Let's consider our second point this morning. Job's developing hope. Job's developing hope. If you were here last week, this may come as a surprise to you. Job in chapter 9 had no hope at all. He said God was unjust, that God was cruel, and that he needed a court case and there was no hope for him to stand before God. And I'll be honest, even if you read Job 15 to 21, you would be surprised to think that there's hope in this man. Frankly, he talks more about how badly he's been treated by others, how God has rejected him and how he's going to die soon than anything hopeful. But he has hope. It's a developing hope. And if we looked at chapter 3, there was no glimpses of hope. Only lament, only sorrow and despair. But slowly, in small ways, hope is beginning to emerge. There's, in the midst of his darkness, there is light. And it's shining. And it's not very bright. It's not enough to overtake all of the darkness. The light is shining like that nightlight in the bathroom. That somehow... 
is bright enough to light not just the bathroom, but even around the corner and down the hall. But you only see it in the darkest nights. So in Job's darkest moment, there's rays of light that are piercing through. One of the ones we just have to acknowledge, we won't see it in our text today, we overlooked it last week just for the sake of time, is that Job's praying. The friends keep talking to Job, and Job talks back to them, and he talks to God. Job's lamenting. He's petitioning. He's requesting. He's complaining. And it's hard for us to see them hopeful. You might remember Ryan talked about the stages, the steps of lament. He mentioned five of them. And Job only does the first one. And so it's hard to see that first movement of telling God what's wrong and think that there's much hope. It's as if he doesn't yet know the character of God enough to work all the way through it. But he's learning. Before we read these passages... I think there's some application for us, just considering this idea of developing hope. The Lord uses the seminary of suffering to grow us as theologians. And yet, suffering is made much harder when our theology isn't established and when there aren't bedrock truths in place. So let Job be a reminder to you that you need to get that foundation laid right now. A few years ago, a friend of mine passed away unexpectedly. He was 20 years old, and in a moment, he fell down while playing kickball with his friends. Two years after Nick passed away, his mom wrote a blog post describing how she was doing and how she was reflecting upon Nick's passing, and she said this, Looking back, I now see how God prepared me years ago to weather such a storm. He blessed me by giving me a bedrock of theology that in my weakest moment, I had to simply deploy. So for those that are in Christ, your theology will develop. Your hope will grow. But the question, though, is will it develop in the furnace? Or will you be able to take it into the furnace with you? Let Job be an encouragement to you to not wait until you're in the furnace to start asking, who is God? What are the promises that you can hold tight to? Job had to grow in the furnace. But let's see how he grows. We're going to see that in two passages. I'll apologize. Your handout as well as the sermon slides are going to be a little different. As I worked on this, I decided... We should do things a bit different, but the, the words will be on the screen for you. So we're going to look at Job chapter 16, verses 18 to 22. And then we're going to look at Job chapter 19, verse 23 to 27. So 16, 18 to 22, and then 19, 23 to 27. Let me read chapter 16, verse 18 to 22. Job says this, O earth, cover not my blood. And let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God. That he would argue the case of a man with God. As a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. 
Now let's consider Job 19, verse 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin is thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Even in the midst of his suffering, Job has hope. He has a witness. He has a redeemer. And while these two passages are in different speeches and they use different words to describe this person, they're referencing the same hope. So let's consider them together. What does Job need most from this witness, this redeemer? Well, in chapter 19, Job describes how much he has been rejected and derided by everyone around him. He begins by saying his friends are tormenting him. In verse 6, he says God's put him in the wrong. From 7 to 12, he describes God attacking him as a sinner. The dominant image is like someone being trapped in a city that's under siege of a giant army. In 19, 13 to 20, Job describes every individual person in society and how they've all rejected him. Brothers, relatives, close friends, guests in his house, servants, his wife, his siblings. He's even mocked by little kids playing games in the streets. Job's life is a living hell, rejected by God and rejected by all mankind. Ironically, even as Job describes his life, it sounds a lot like the life Bildad said happens to the wicked. And this certainly vexes Job even more because he knows he's not wicked. His deepest pain is that his sufferings prove that God is against him. He just wants to know what happened. What happened to their relationship? He wants to be reconciled to God. And so what does he need from this Redeemer? He wants someone to come to his defense He wants someone to stand up for him. It seems as if God won't. The counselors won't. And he looks around society and says, will any of you? And they've all forsaken him. His hope or his expectation of what will happen is that he will die. And the only memory that will be left for him is, oh, Job, that wicked man that wouldn't admit it, And so in verse 23 and 24, he cries out, Oh, that my words were written down, that they were written with an iron pen engraved on a rock so that they would last forever. He wants the record of what has happened in his life to continue on after him so that others could hear, could come to his defense so that the truth of the matter would continue. He wants someone to take the mantle up for him. He wants someone to represent him, to advocate for him, to mediate for him in that courtroom. He says the same thing in chapter 16, doesn't he? He wants a witness, someone to stand up and testify before God. 
And we see such a fast turn, don't we? In 23 and 24, he's longing for it. And yet by verse 25, he has it. He knows he has it. It's not wishful thinking or optimism. He knows that this redeemer he needs lives. He has a heavenly advocate. In, verse, or in chapter 16, we see that this advocate is not on earth. He's already in heaven. Before the throne of God, he is testifying. And he's not bullied. He's not intimidated by God. He argues to him like a man speaks to another man. This is a curious idea. Because Job, a man thought about standing before God in chapter 9 and said, there's no hope for me. Yet this new advocate stands confidently, effectively before the Lord. In chapter 19, we see other important things about this advocate, this redeemer. Job says this in chapter 19, verse 25 that at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job pictures both a mediator, a redeemer that's actively working. He's currently testifying, and yet there is something in a future day. There's a work still to come. And Job says that that future day, he's going to stand on the earth. What's he talking about? Is he just suggesting that this mediator will leave the throne of God and be present on earth? It could mean that. But let me suggest that it's saying far more. You might notice if you have the English Standard Version of the Bible, that there's a little uh, footnote with that word earth. That word earth is translated earth, which is a fine translation, but it could also be translated dust. And in the book of Job, the word dust is translated far more often. And every time Job is talking about dust, do you know what he's talking about? The grave, his own death. Another interesting tidbit here is this word stand. It's a fine way to translate it, but this word in other passages of Scripture isn't just talking about someone rising up from a seated position. This word is used to describe someone who rises up in power in authority. This is a word used to describe one ruler standing and rising against another ruler. This is a word about an army standing in battle against another army. So one commentator suggests that maybe a better way to phrase this is that this redeemer will triumph over the grave. Job's not just suggesting that he has a living legal representative, though he does. He believes that this redeemer will stand triumphant over his greatest enemy, death. Job goes on to say that this triumphant redeemer will have some effects of his triumph that are given to Job. And what are they? We see this in verse 26. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job envisions both the destruction of his body and an embodied hope. 
Job has a resurrection hope. He will see God, not in a spiritual vision, but in the flesh. And think about this hope to a man like Job. What is his greatest lament? He thinks something has happened that's ruined his relationship with God. And yet this Redeemer is the way in which he will stand before that God again. Face to face. This carries the idea that Job's made right with God through the work of this Redeemer. Even in the text here, it may sound redundant at times, right? Verse 26 and 27. In my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold him, and not another. That phrase, not another, could also be translated. It carries this idea of not like a stranger or a foreigner. That means as Job will get to see God, and he'll be accepted. He will be, he will, he's supposed to be there. He's not an unwelcomed guest that stumbled into the wrong room. So all of this begs the question, who is this Redeemer? You might be surprised to know that this is probably the hottest debated thing in the book of Job. We don't have time to go into the entire debate. I think on face value and reading this and studying this, the answer is far easier than scholars want it to be. Who's the Redeemer? For Job, I think in his mind where he's at, he likely thought God was the Redeemer. Who else could stand and testify in court and win a case against God? He couldn't. And this is so perplexing to us, isn't it? Because just last week, we talked about how Job saw God as this twisted, cruel ruler of the world. And yet now, we see that deep down, he still holds hope that God's character was good. And that God would do what's right. This helps us make sense of passages in, like Job 13, verses 15 to 16, where Job, in the midst of lament, randomly says these words, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face, and this will be my salvation. Job, in the midst of despair, has hope. But it's not overtaking. It's not overcoming. It is shining through in small moments and developing. What's amazing is that Job speaks greater than he knew. He's convinced he has a redeemer in celestial court. And unbeknownst to Job, there is someone right now in that court defending him. There was someone arguing for his righteousness against the accuser. The irony of Job is he doesn't know what God has already said about him. He thinks God's his enemy, but God is his advocate. Satan's the accuser, and God's saying, I have no one like him. He fears me. He turns away from evil. He holds fast to his integrity. God stands as Job's friend, and Job misunderstands all of what's happening. But there's even another way that Job speaks greater than he knew. 
on this side of the cross, this redeemer that Job's longing for. It's like he's painting the perfect picture of us, of Jesus Christ. We know the redeemer, Titus 2, 13 to 14, Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us. We know the mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5. We know the advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 1 through 2. We know of heavenly intercession and mediation. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We know of who will take us to face God. 1 John 3, 2, and we know that when he appears, we will see his face and we'll be like him. We know of a triumph over death. Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, Romans 6, 9. And we know of resurrection hope, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Job had real hope. And we have hope filled with greater knowledge. Job had real hope in this Redeemer, and we now can look back with clear eyes as all that God has done. We too have a Redeemer. In our lives, darkness may linger for many, many years. And like Job, we may hear nothing from God. And yet we have hope. We have a Redeemer. In the midst of our suffering, we can know that our future, though uncertain to us, is secure. It is as secure as the grave was empty. We, in suffering, can know that our suffering will end one day. Maybe not in this life, but it will certainly have a deadline. And our suffering will be done. And we know in Christ that our darkest days will be eclipsed by glory. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So what do we do? We don't set our hope in our friends. They're going to fail us. We don't put it in this world. We don't set it in riches. They'll come and go. No, we set our hearts on Christ, our Redeemer. We cry out and lament when times are hard, knowing that he hears us. And we trust his wise, loving, powerful hand. He is our rock, our redeemer, our king. He crushed death and he moves in mysterious ways. Let's pray. Oh Lord, 
Thank you for your wisdom to send a redeemer. Lord, this is what we needed. Lord, we need hope in him. Life is far too complicated, too disastrous to do this without hope. Lord, we thank you that in Christ there is true hope. Grant us more, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.